God in His presence with His people. This year has been a great reminder of that. The first four months of this year have been very trying for my wife and I. A lot of people back home in our hometown of Montgomery, Alabama, have been suffering significantly. And it's caused us great pain and suffering in many respects, and yet great joy. Just yesterday, we were back home at a funeral for a mentor of mine, a spiritual father of my wife, Greg Graham, to celebrate him being with Christ, but also to mourn him leaving this earth. It's a great reminder to be in the people of God that although things in this life are not good, God is good. And that's what our text is about today, the goodness of God. A.W. Tozer said that the most important thing about us is what comes to our mind when we think of God. I love this quote. Because what it does for me is it causes me to think deeply about God. What do I think about God? And does it line up with Scripture? Because it has a profound impact of how we view ourselves. So when I say God is good, what comes to your mind? What do you think about the goodness of God. Our text this morning is about the absolute goodness of God. So please turn with me in your, pew, in, in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 846. To Mark chapter 10, and I'll read from verses 17 to 22 for context. But this morning we're going to deal primarily with verse 18 on the absolute goodness of God. Please follow along as I start at verse 17. God's Word says, And he was setting out on his journey, that is Christ. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God and God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have, you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the word of our good God, worthy of full acceptance, and meant for his people to be a means of grace for the nourishment of our faith unto good works. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness. Even in difficult circumstances, We are reminded that things are not all good here. And yet, Father, this morning I pray that we would cling to your promises, your good promises of life eternal in Christ, that although things are not good here, 
a great inheritance, a good inheritance awaits us. In Christ, let me pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to look at the absolute goodness of God, the attribute of God's goodness. Secondly, we're going to look at the bad news of God's goodness for sinners. And then third and finally, we're going to look at the good news of God's goodness for sinners. But first, before we get into that, we need to set the stage with three main things. First, we need to define the goodness of God, even though that's not fully possible. We need to define the goodness of God. And the second thing we need to do before we get into our points is we need to understand the context of what's happening here. What caused Christ to say only God is good? And thirdly, we will look briefly at a position called classical Christian theism to help us further understand what it means for God to be good. But first, let's look at a definition of God, God's goodness. First, a theological definition. Herman Bovink defines God's goodness goodness as all the virtues ascribed to him in Scripture in in their absolute sense. Stephen Charnock describes God's goodness theologically in terms of his absolute perfection by saying, God is only originally good of himself. All created goodness is a small stream from the fountain, but divine goodness has no spring. God depends on no other for his goodness. Man has no goodness apart from God. God has good from, God has good, God has no good from without himself. And what Sharnock is saying is that God's goodness has no beginning or end because his attributes are not in any way separated from his divine essence or being. Let's look at a biblical explanation of God's goodness. Let's look at two verses. First, the one in our text, Mark 10, 18, is teaching that God is the only one who possesses all goodness. Everything that follows in creation can only be truly said to be created good. Another verse is Psalms one, Psalm 145, 19, I'm sorry, 145, 9. And it says that the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. And so those two verses together teach us that because God is essentially good, meaning he can only do good, Every bit of goodness dispensed to creation has to be said to come from God as its original cause. A practical application of God's goodness flows from the fact that God's necessary action is to do what is favorable in all that he is and all that he does. So practically speaking, every redemptive quality, every blessing, Every promise that we have from God is communicated by his goodness. So when you pray and hope that God will be merciful to you, or that he will forgive your sins, or that he will help your wayward child, or that he will give you a good diagnosis, or he will give you blessings in this life, you are asking God to do good to you because all of those things are communicated by his goodness. 
And with these points in mind, let's turn to context, our context today. Verse 22 teaches us that this man was a man of great possession. He was most likely a man of stature and of some repute in the region because it was taught in ancient Israel by a group that wealth and affluence was a sign of favor with God. And some even taught that there, if you had favor, you were, more, you were more likely candidate for heaven or paradise. So the rich man coming to Jesus probably thought that he was just a few steps away from heaven. He had great possessions. God had blessed him. Clearly, God had done good to him and shown him favor in his life. He was prime and right for an eternal blessing. So this man come, comes to Jesus, and he shows great reverence and appreciation for Jesus. Verse 17 tells us that he knelt before Jesus. And we don't know because the text does not explicitly tell us, but this man was probably very serious about religion. When Jesus lists off the second table of the Ten Commandments to him, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, honor your father and your mother. He says in verse 20 that he had kept them from his youth. He was aware of and knew the law of God well. So we can conclude that since he, was, since he had professed to have kept the Ten Commandments from his youth, that he was most likely an Israelite. And since he was of great affluence, maybe a royal of some sort, he could have been trained in Jewish religious studies of some, some kind. Maybe he had access to pharisaical teachers to teach him the Torah because of his most, because of his family's riches and affluence. We don't know because the text doesn't tell us, but it could be true. What we do know is that this man was not like the Pharisees of Jesus, even if he had learned from them because he showed reverence and respect for Christ. He showed enough reverence and respect to inquire of Christ, inquire of Christ the most important question that any man, woman, or child could ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And now he's engaged, the very Son of God, in this conversation. And the last thing briefly before we get into our points is I want to explain briefly this idea of classical Christian theism. As we look at God's goodness, which is one of his ethical attributes, we need to understand his nature. And historically, the church has have held, they've held, we've held to a position called classical Christian theism, which is God, which teaches that God does not gain or acquire anything from outside of itself. He's not in process. Nothing from outside of God can cause motion within God. He is independently, perfectly God. He is never becoming and therefore is never in process, but he is simply what he is. He is all that he is. So with this is, so with this is our background, let's look at the attribute of God's goodness. Growing up, didn't grow up in church, but when we would get in trouble, we would have to go to church with my grandmother. It's like a punishment. And my grandmother went to this small AME Zion, which is of the Methodist tradition church. Sweet people. 
And I don't remember anything but this one thing from this church before I was a believer. And every Sunday, the preacher would stand up, and he would say, God is good, and the congregation would respond in like manner. All the time, and the preacher would say, all the time, God is good. Now, that church, I would not say it was great, a great theological church, but what a sincere and sweet confession of faith. And I remember becoming a believer and asking my grandmother, hey, why did y'all do that? I don't understand that. Why did y'all do that every Sunday? And I remember her with tears coming down her face, explaining because things were not always good. It was a reminder of those people that even though things may not be good, we must cling and hold fast to the truth. God is good. Society, sin, the world, everything, everything wants to communicate, even your own flesh, that God is not good. This is why we must go back to the Word. This is why it's called faith. But look at our text again. This rich man, zealous for religion, even having respect for Jesus, he proves to misunderstand the gospel message because he missed who Jesus was. He refers to Jesus as a good teacher, which really isn't a problem. Christ called himself the good shepherd in John 10. And a shepherd instructs, but this man in his heart only saw Jesus as a good teacher, not as the savior of the world. And how do we know this? Because his next question, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He missed Christ because Christ is not part of our religion as a teacher, he is our religion. There is no Christianity without the great Savior. He didn't see Jesus was good, the good God of salvation. So Jesus, who was a master teacher and theologian, responded to this man by calling, this man calling him a good teacher by asking him how his good works could save him and ask him how, how his good works can save him. And Christ gave a very vague response. He says in verse 18, no one is good but God. Jesus is not here saying that God the Father is of higher, a higher quality deity than himself, which is what the Jehovah's Witness and other heresies would claim. But rather, he is trying to challenge the heart of this man who failed to see that he was engaging with the God of the universe. So what does Jesus mean when he says only God is good? Herman Boving says that the goodness of God deserves first place among all of his ethical attributes. Whatever is upright, whatever is truly excellent, whatever is beautiful, excellent, honorable, lovely, pleasurable, is a reflection of the goodness of our great God. And in keeping with what I said about classical Christian theism, Christ says that no one is good but God. 
He is teaching that while everything in creation possesses elements of goodness or good, it can only be said truthfully and fully about God that he is actually good itself. Stephen Sharnock says that God is not the first, God is not first God and then afterward good, but he is good as he is God. His essence or his being are one and the same and is formally and equally God and good. Because nothing including God caused him to be, it means that he himself must be the first cause of all things. And since he's eternally and essentially good, he therefore is the cause of all the good reflected in creation. So when Jesus says to the rich man that no one is good but God, he means that in the absolute, independent, and free sense, no one can, can truly be said to be good, but they can only possess good given to them freely by God. Job 35, 7, speaking of the unchangeable nature of God, says, If you are righteous, what do you give to him that is God? Or what does he receive from you? Men cannot cause themselves to be good. Think about Adam. What happened in the garden? God made him good. That's what the word says. He created man, and man was good. And yet, in the garden, he gave him a proposition. Let's call it a covenant. And what he said is, essentially, if you don't eat of this tree, you will live. But if you eat of it, you will die. So some theologians in church history have taught and believed philosophically, because the scriptures don't tell us, that if Adam, all the way to the seventh day, had obeyed, he would have actually entered into a state of perfection where he could not sin, similar to what we will have in glory, where he would be unable to sin. And he would have lived forever. If that's true, then let me ask you a question. Does the promise of eternal life for Adam match his works? So even a perfect Adam, if he had never sinned, would his perfect obedience or good obedience match the promised glory? It would not have, because it came from the only good God. Even if he had never sinned, Adam would have never been able to truly have been said to be good because he's a creature. And so for this man to come and say, what must I do to be saved by virtue of good works, keeping the commandments, is a misnomer. How many sermons, if you grew up in a Southern Baptist church, have you heard say, well, we're not good people? Even Adam wasn't formally good in the absolute sense before the fall. How much more us with sinful natures? It is illogical and theologically incoherent to say in any sense, especially on this side of the fall, that anyone can be good. And that is good news because we must go to God. You must never look inward. You must only look to God. He's given us a path and a way. He has not left us idle. He would have been just to wipe away Adam and start over with creation. In a sense, he did that with Noah, right? But he didn't. Praise be to God. So when Jesus says to the rich man 
in Mark 10, 18, that only God is good. He's not saying simply because the man was a sinner that he could not be good, but because the man was a creature and not God. That's what it means for God to be good in the absolute sense. And this has practical implications for us, doesn't it? If only God is good, we therefore receive all good things from the hand of God. From a Christian who has tasted and seen that God is good, is it logical for us to be arrogant? Is it logical for us to treat others as less than? Is it logical to treat our spouses as unworthy of our love? And we do this, not with our words, but with our actions often. What about other church members? What about theological positions? How often do we look down on other Christians, true believers, bought with the blood of Christ, and act like we're somehow better? If God is good in the absolute sense, we have received all from God. You may not look at your own works and boast. And that's really good news. They may not be as good as you think they are. Ephesians 2.10 teaches us that God prepared good works for his people based upon the work of Christ on the cross, not our works. So biblically and logically, we can conclude that if God is good, he must therefore be opposed to all that is evil. And that leads to my second point, the bad news of God's goodness. Paul Washer, an evangelist, former missionary, teaching on the doctrine of total depravity. He said he was in, I think, Europe, secular, secular university, and he was apologetically teaching about God. And he said to the crowd, I'm going to tell you the most terrifying thing I can tell a man, a woman, a child. And the crowd on the edge of their seats, they're watching, they're waiting. I think he pauses for effect. And finally, someone, I'm sorry, and Paul Washer says, God is good. And finally, someone says, well, what's the problem with that? And Paul Washer says, because you are not good. So what does a good God do with you? That's a very good question. Romans 5, 12, 12 says, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and this sin recreated the good nature of Adam and all of his covenantal, covenantally represented posterity. It changed our natures from good, made in creation, to evil. Where we once had the ability to do good before salvation in Christ, we can only do what is evil because of sin. Romans 3.12 says that no one does good, not even one. So not only are we not good by virtue of being creaturely and not God, but because of the fall of Adam, we no longer possess our inherent goodness by virtue of creation. So the goodness of God compels him to reprimand all that rebels against him. And because he's essentially good, all that, he, all that is not good in the creation is an offense to him. 
He cannot suffer evil. He cannot ignore evil because he is good. And so this truth is thought of properly, because some people will say, well, that makes God a bully. But if this truth thought of properly, we would understand God is not a bully. He is a just judge. He is not picking on weak and innocent people by reprimanding evil. He is correcting thieves and murderers and adulterers and idolaters by necessity of his goodness. And this should cause us to be humble. Because God is also all-powerful, can anyone stop him from executing his good justice? No one. God is a just judge ready to execute perfect and good justice against our crimes. And so this is a perfect time to ask. If God is good and we are not good, do you know God? He is unabated. He will execute justice. Do not confuse his patience, which flows from his goodness and his forbearance and his mercy and his long suffering for absence. He is ever present. He is merciful because he is essentially God. He is free to be patient with you. But mercy and patience will run its course. Do you know God? If you do not, it will not be good for you. But praise be to God that there is good news for sinners with God's goodness. Just as God's goodness is bad news towards sinners who will not repent, it is also very good news for those who do. When Adam sinned in the garden, according to his goodness, God was freely able to destroy him. But also according to his goodness and freedom, he was able to show mercy. And at his discretion, he freely showed mercy. And this mercy is communicated or it flows from his goodness. Sin to God is an opportunity to be good by showing us mercy and grace. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely, scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And because God is free, he is free to overlook, not eternally, but for a time, and give a time of repentance. God's patience or his forbearance is a redemptive manifestation of his goodness. Romans 3 says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of, short of the glory of God, and justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier for the one who has faith in Christ. And because God is free in dispersing his goodness, he can give grace. 
And divine grace is another manifestation of his goodness, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 teaches, teaches us. And this is all good news for sinners, brothers and sisters. Our God bids us to come to Jesus. This is the blind ignorance of Mark 10 for the rich, rich young ruler. He misunderstood God's law because he said he had kept it from his youth. But we know we are not good. We cannot keep the law any, on any metric for salvation. He misunderstood the gospel because he did not recognize from his heart who Christ was. Therefore, he could not see his need for a savior. J.C. Ryle says, if we think we can keep the law, then Christ profits us nothing. And so think with me about a man. This man's a Christian, but he's a hard man. He's uncompromising with his spouse, with his kids, with his coworkers, even those within the household of faith, fellow Christians. And this man, at times, because he has a high standard, at times he restricts or withholds goodness from those whom he professes to love. Maybe his wife is not a good communicator, and it frustrates him. And instead of doing good to her by meeting her where she is to help her communicate, instead, this man cuts her off. He doesn't include her in important decisions because, oh, she just won't get it. He doesn't involve her and, and allow her to help him with difficult situations because she'll just mess it up. He doesn't have patience. He doesn't disciple his wife. He doesn't meet her where she is. And what this man is doing is he's withholding good from his spouse. And he does this with his kids. He has an, oh, I'll just do it myself because you are incompetent, incompetent personality. And so he pushes things away. He's impatient with his coworkers. When they mess something up, he is on them like white on rice. There's no grace on his lips. There's no mercy, there's no forgiveness, because everything has a standard, everything has an order, and everything must be done correctly. Even in church, he judges silently often those in the congregation. Look at those kids running around the congregation like they're crazy. Their parents must not be good parents. This man withholds charitable judgment from those whom he perceives to not be as good as him. And what this man is doing is he restricts and he withholds goodness from others. Well, this man has clearly forgotten his first love. He has forgotten the grace of God. He has forgotten that if God withholds and applies that same standard from, to him, he would perish. He'd be cast out in utter darkness. He has forgotten the mercy of God. He has stopped drinking at the fountain of Christ. This man needs to be reminded that God is good, essentially. He is not good. He receives all good things from God. And this should cause this man to repent and be humble. Because what if God restricted that goodness from him? Brothers and sisters, do you know 
from the moment that you have believed upon Christ, there has never been a time in which God has withheld goodness from you, even if you don't feel it. God is good, and he does good to you and for you. If we have hearts like this man, then we should repent. We should remember that God gave us the ultimate good in Christ. Is there a higher good that the Father can send than the Son for us? He gave us Christ to do us good. He gave us Christ as an example of what good, goodness looks like. He gave us Christ to feast on the good Savior. He gave us Christ to remember that God is good. Praise be to God that he meets us where we are and does good to us. And so as we conclude, I want us to consider Christ together and God's goodness towards sinners in the gospel. There is one promise, brothers and sisters, that we receive that Jesus will never receive. Do you know all of eternity? You will be able to testify that the Father will never forsake you. Christ cannot say that. By virtue of Christ's death, he was forsaken so that you never have to be. Praise be to God. And we get a promise that Jesus does not get. Have you ever considered that? What love and grace and goodness towards sinners. He, give a, he gives us the most highest and precious gift that he can. And a right response to such goodness is to lay hold of Jesus by faith and follow his good example for us. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, for, God, for which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A proper response to God's grace is not sin. Shall we sin that grace may abide? A proper response to the goodness and grace of God is obedience. It is not obedience unto life. You are perfectly loved by the unchangeable God. It is not obedience to earn stature with men or with God. It's not even obedience for obedience sake. It's obedience for the glory of God, a manifestation that you love God because he first loved you. That's why it says he prepared them for you. He has done it all. So we should walk in the prepared good works that God has for us revealed in Scripture. And God has also given us the gift of his Holy Spirit as a great possession of his goodness to guide us and empower us to conform to the image of Christ. So in our marriages, what should we do when our spouses fall short of our standard of good? We should disciple them, husbands and wives. We should meet them where they are. We should do good to them. How much good? As much as Christ does to you. He is the example. When our, children's fall, when our children fall short of our standard, even if they fall short of God's perfect standard, 
What should we do? We should do good to them. Because God, when we could not keep the law, what did he do? He died at the right time for sinners. Our church members, this is why fellowship is essential. When someone is suffering, when someone is going through it, and I'm seeing faces that I know are going through it, we should not sit on the sidelines and say, oh, God, I'll work that out. We should engage in rich, good fellowship with fellow believers. Because God saved us to be a part of his body. Because God is patient with us, we should cover one another's sins when we sin against one another. And we will and have sinned against one another. We should do good by forgiving one another. It's not easy, but we should strive for it. Why has God withheld goodness from you and any unforgiveness towards you? It's not always possible, but we should strive for it. When we suffer, we must do so as those who remember that God is good. We should suffer with the knowledge of God's goodness, like our Savior did. And I leave you with 1 Peter, verses from 1 Peter chapter 2. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you are healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Let us go forth from this place and be good to one another with the knowledge that Christ died for sinners. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And there are those who are here who are suffering. Father, I pray that you will remind them by your spirit of your greatness, how good and how great you are. And if they are suffering and struggling in their faith, may they turn to Christ and be reminded that Christ suffered. He can sympathize with them because he suffered and yet he died even for their weak faith, even for unrepented heart. He parts, he suffered perfectly so that we do not have to. And yet you've given us grace and an example in Christ for how which we should suffer. May you remind us again of your goodness. And may we go from this place trusting in your goodness and you alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.